Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We are in week three of our series, which is a study on the book of 1 Peter entitled Exiled, Hope in a Hostile World. We have two messages for you this week as we are joined by both the Rev. Dr. John Guest and the Rev. Doug Rary to give their perspective on 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Here is the Rev. Dr. John Guest with his message. Thank you for listening. Well, I trust that will be our expression of our hearts, all the more so as we come to this understanding, more clear and thorough understanding of what it means to call Jesus the cornerstone. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. In the presence of this glorious God of ours, and the privilege we have to come immediately, in a sense, face to face with him, and to be able to talk to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you for all that we have celebrated about your goodness, your greatness, your loveliness. Take my lips now, Lord Jesus, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. Set them on fire with love for yourself, Lord Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of traveling with a very preeminent Christian leader in the world, an Englishman by the name of John R.W. Stott. It was his 80th birthday, and we were celebrating that with him, with a group of us traveling around the United Kingdom to places that were important in his life where he went to school, the chapel in which he was converted, where he went to university, and then the church in which he preached most of his life in London called All Souls Langham Place. Langham Place is the place where it was, All Souls the name of the church. Tremendous author. He was to theology in our generation what Billy Graham was to evangelism in our generation. John Stott, preeminent theologian, teacher, Bible expositor, writer of amazing works and leader of all kinds of leaders around the country and the world. So that was a pretty significant week we got to spend with him. When we were in the chapel at the rugby school where rugby football was invented, in a little town, smallish town anyway, by large town standards called rugby, where rugby football was invented, as I've said, which was the precursor to American football. And uh, we were in the chapel with uh, John Stott, and he said that that's where a man came to speak, and then prayer, praying with John, as a young teenager, led him to put his trust in Christ. So we're in the very space where John Stott and all that he became began that journey and asked Jesus to come into his life. And the first piece of teaching he remembers the man who led him there to the cross and to that surrender was this. 
for the rest of your life, John, you are going to be swimming upstream, against the stream. That's a word to all of us today, as we consider again that we are exiles in a hostile world, and it's becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus and the gospel. And what's staggering to me as an Englishman who became an American and joined myself to you all, that the gospel and the Lord Jesus himself are more and more increasingly the subject of hostility, hostile action, hostile court decisions, hostile legislation, hostile publications, hostile and vicious comments. We live in a hostile world. That was always the case. We were somewhat shielded from it here in the USA because the Christian faith used to be the norm by which our culture was judged. Today we have a culture in general that rejects any standard that's biblical, that is, owns it as biblical, A friend of mine on the board, I'm not dropping names here or power, it sounds like it, but on the board of Harvard at one point was sitting with that board as they were discussing, given the sort of rise of white-collar crime in sophisticated, educated America, what to teach the students by way of character-building teaching. And my friend suggested, why not, don't we begin with the Ten Commandments? And he was ridiculed. As he described it to a group of us, he was ridiculed for suggesting the Ten Commandments be the standard by which we understand character and character building, what is right and what is wrong and how we should live. So here we come now to talk about Jesus as the cornerstone I would encourage you, please, to open up your service sheet, if you don't have a Bible with you, to page six. Get a pen in your hand. You've got a place for notes across the page, because we are going to be looking at what one theologian has called a premier analogy or description of who Jesus is, the cornerstone. There are two primary meanings for the idea of the cornerstone. So look at this passage with me and you'll see what they are. In verse 6, when he quotes the scripture, this is the apostle Peter quoting scripture, he says, for in the scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion. So now we have a prophetic word from Isaiah describing who Jesus would be. A chosen and precious stone And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Make a note to yourself that that is Isaiah, Isaiah, chapter 28 and verse 16. You might want to circle that in the the passage as we're looking at it. But he lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And what is implied there as he lays that stone is the first idea that on the foundation of any great building, 
the first stone laid at the corner was a choice stone, and it set in place the lines for the building, as well as the quality of stone, whether the cut of the stone or the beveling of the stone, known as the cornerstone. We often dedicate stones in buildings today as the cornerstone and put the date in it and the significance of the building that we're building to have as a cornerstone. It's that significant first stone laid that sets the standard, the mark, the description of what the whole building is to become. So here you have, quoting Isaiah, that God has laid such a stone in Zion that is chosen and precious. So verse 7 goes on to say, Now you who believe this stone is precious, to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, and here another scripture is quoted, make a note of it, it's Psalm 118 verse 22. And this, he goes on to say, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now that's a second idea of what this cornerstone or capstone might be. The cornerstone is the first stone laid. The capstone is the last and glorious stone laid at the finish and crowning glory of the building. So it's described not as a cornerstone, but a capstone. Same concept preeminently important, not as the first stone, but as the last stone, the crowning glory of the building. So those are the first descriptions of this stone and the most important of them. Let me, for instance, turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, where Jesus speaks excuse me, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus in these terms. He speaks of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So there is the cornerstone, the first stone laid. But the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus takes that particular quote to himself. Make a note of it again. Matthew chapter 21. Listen to these words. Jesus himself speaking about the rejection that he was experiencing by the religious leadership of his day. He says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone and the capstone. Those two descriptions, the first stone laid, standard quality of what the whole building was to become, or the last stone laid, the supreme glory of the 
the building built. And Jesus has taken to himself this prophecy as being that cornerstone or that capstone which the builders rejected. Christ came into a hostile world. When he came to his own people, the apostle John says, chapter 1, his own people didn't receive him. He came to his own and they received him not. He came into a hostile world and was treated very quickly early in his ministry with hostility and rejected systematically through his whole ministry by the people who ought to have known better. And because of that rejection, and you can see how it all fitted with God's plan, he ends up being crucified. The one who healed, raised the dead, gave dignity to prostitutes, fed the hungry, drove out the demons, lifted the poor, crucified. Often you get the idea that if you were good enough, people would so love you they'd want to become Christians. If you were good enough, you'd get crucified. Jesus was perfect. He said everything perfectly. He taught perfectly. He lived perfectly. And he died perfectly. But he did die for us. But that rejection of who he is because he, the Lord, came to a hostile word, world and it was prophesied that he would be rejected and so he becomes our saviour in that rejection. Let me just stop for a moment and say to you, what would you consider the first stone laid in your life? What is most important to you about the building of your life? What would you say if you come to the capstone concept is the crowning glory of your life? What would you like to exhibit as preeminently who you are so that people could grasp who you are? And I tell you, too often we are conditioned by the ideas of the world, so it is the house we live in, the car we drive, the job we have, the clothes we wear, the family we have, the education, our background. It's a lot of very well-meaning good stuff. But is Jesus preeminent? If you had it all to do again, would you lay him as the first stone of the building of your life? If you had it to do again, and this one you can change, would you see Jesus as the crowning glory of your life? The one you are most proud of? The one who epitomizes who you are and what you live for? So that when you measure your life and everything that's beneath that capstone... It represents and is represented in Jesus. Honors him. We've been singing the most amazing hymns and songs, all leading us around this notion that Jesus is first. Jesus is everything. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is wonderful. And one of the things that is sad to say that Jesus, in all this, has become a stumbling block, a stone of stumbling, a cornerstone, a capstone, but a stumbling stone. 
That's what's represented in verse 8 of this chapter in Peter. Look at it. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And perhaps one of the reasons we don't honor Jesus as we ought to in our lives, in our daily expression of our lives and how we manage our relationships and enter into various conversations and the decisions we make about our lives and how we're going to actually like portray ourselves is we see the same opposition coming that Jesus received and we don't want people having a problem with us because we are Christian. And so we are tempted to be silent about our faith. As you know, a case has just been decided in the court for a Christian baker out in Colorado. For him, Jesus was more important than his business. For five years he has been in the courts defending his right to honor Jesus first. Get that. It's to honor Jesus first. It's not just about baking and designing a cake, designing a cake for a homosexual wedding. It's about honoring Jesus first, to please him first. The rest follows from that. It becomes a stone of stumbling to people. We recognize that. And we tend want to, we want to avoid being that stumbling stone. That is, to so represent Jesus that as he is a stumbling block to people, so we might be a stumbling block and receive the kind of hostility that he received. Listen to Peter. It's interesting reading Peter and then listening to one of Peter's early descriptions when he was on trial, hostilely so, for healing a man. You remember the first great miracle that was done was the healing of the lame man at the temple gate. He'd been there forever. Everybody knew who he was, and he was healed by Peter and John, really by the Lord Jesus. So Peter ends up in front of the authorities, and I'm in Acts chapter 4, and he says this, filled with the Spirit, rulers and elders, he said, of the people, we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he quotes this same verse. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. And then he goes on to say this, hallelujah. I've never put this all together and thank you, Pastor Jared, for giving me the task of expounding on the cornerstone and the capstone. Having said that it's the stone the builders rejected and has become the capstone, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men 
by which we must be saved. He is the capstone, the cornerstone. But the guts of Peter, it actually goes on to say, just as we've always understood, that he was a very ordinary man. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you desire that for yourself? that people would know you are so connected with Jesus because of your lifestyle, how you express yourself, the decisions you make, what you're doing with your assets, what you are doing with your skills, what you're doing with your personality and gifts. Opposition awaits. There's one other description I want us to look at as we continue to follow along with Peter here. Go back to First Peter, so you're page 6 in your service sheet there. Verse 4, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone. It just crossed my mind this morning, over in Africa, where some of our folks are going, you run into lots of Africans who either have the first or last name Livingston, like David Livingston, the missionary. But they don't say Livingston as we say it in England or here. They call themselves Livingstone. Either their first name or their last name. My name is Isaiah Livingstone. To mimic the way they say it. Well, my name is Livingstone. Well, how do you become a living, genuinely become a living stone? Because what Peter is describing is becoming living stones. Look at verse 5. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How does that all happen? When we, like dead stones, come to Jesus, we become like him a living stone. It's interesting, we're talking about a building, and it's easy to think of monuments, um, cut stone buildings, but stone is a dead material. But Jesus is a living stone. He is the living foundation stone of everything we conceive our lives to be once we have come to him, or the crowning glory of our lives as we grow up in him, but what's beautiful is that he, the living stone, when we get connected to him, makes us living stones. That's how that all happens. You get connected to Jesus. And everything describing here, from darkness to light, a people that were no people becoming a people, having a ministry that's 
pleasing to God, unhonoring to God, we become living stones, part of this living, holy temple with a holy cause to our lives. One last thought. This stone is also described in verse 4 as precious. Chosen by God and precious. Precious to who? Precious to him, to God. And to us who believe, look at verse 7, you who believe, this stone is precious, that is Jesus. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected is who Jesus is. Precious or rejected. God's point of view, man's point of view. Precious is God's point of view. Jesus is precious. That's God's estimate of who he is. Precious. When Jesus was on earth, what did God have to say of him? That people heard like a booming voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. On another occasion, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. He is precious. But in a hostile world, he is rejected. And it is about Jesus. When you get to the bottom of it all, it is about Jesus. It's not just about morality, legislation, who's getting their slice of the pie, via the government programs. Bottom line, when you get beyond it all, it is about Jesus and his plan for our lives and his plan for us as a people. Listen to what Jesus went on to say. It's rather chilling, exciting in one hand, chilling on the other. Matthew chapter 21 Verse 42, I have read. Jesus saying, have you never read that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. But verse 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Did you hear that? When we come and fall upon Jesus, when we surrender to him, when we abut our lives to him, when we join ourselves to him, he breaks sin in our lives, he breaks the pride and the arrogance of our lives. He humbles us. We want him to. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud, says the scripture. Jesus himself, with all the claims to greatness, is marked by humility. The people he hung with, how he lived his life, the people who were most drawn to him were the humble folks, the ordinary folks, the working folks of his day, the broken people. They were drawn to him. But when he breaks the pride and the arrogance of our self-driven egocentric lives we become the people he wants us to be if we're not those who fall on Jesus and are broken in humility before him then one day he will come like the Lion of Judah 
not the lamb of sacrifice, but the lion of Judah. And we will face his judgment. If his stone, if he, Jesus, falls on us, we will be ground to dust. The judgment of Jesus. I want to finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And then I'm going to ask a dear friend of mine, wife of Pastor Ed Glover, Tammy Glover, to come and sing a song. I would rather have Jesus than silver and gold. But I want to read this quote to sum up this last stone as described. The Jesus stone, that if we fall on it, we will be broken in our pride and prejudice. If it falls on us, we will be judged and ultimately so. Lewis said this. It's one of his most profound descriptions. He said, in the end, that face, that's the face of Almighty God, is the delight or the terror of the universe and must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us shall find approval with God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son or daughter. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. So I say to you, come to Jesus. Fall on him. Tammy, come and join us, will you? She's going to sing this song without any musical accompaniment. God has given her a wonderful gift of voice and expression. And I happen to know this is her favorite song. Let's be quiet, close our eyes, see ourselves in the presence of the Lord. This is a holy moment for each of us. Will we choose the stone that is precious or join the world in its rejection. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led 
by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have my Jesus than anything this world affords today he's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom he's sweeter than honey from out of the comb He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus than anything than to be the than anything this old world affords today. May it be the reality of our lives as we walk from church this morning we are yours, no one else's. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Tammy.